We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Good evening. Um, I'd like to invite you to turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew 23. And uh, when I think of Matthew 23, and I encourage you as well uh, to, when you think of a chapter of the Bible, think of a main theme or something going on there. Matthew 23 the woes on the Pharisees and the scribes, hypocrites, okay? Eight times a woe is pronounced in the chapter, and we will come to that. And I thought when I said, well, I've got to go to Matthew 23, that I was going to be getting to that tonight, but I'm actually not. I will speak in an introductory fashion about it, but the first 12 verses are actually not the woe part of the chapter. So we're going to deal with the first 12 under the title, True and Humble Religion, True and Humble Religion. And uh, I've tried to uh, maybe help you folks to, um, how can I say, uh, relax your understanding of the term religion just a little bit. Uh, sometimes people are trained to say, well, there's a religion and there's a relationship. Well, yes, I understand. But we're speaking in the general category of our religion, our spiritual life. And uh, you go to the library, for example, you're not going to find the Christian books under the relationship section. They're going to be under the religion section of the library. So just to kind of expand our horizons there. Of course, we don't believe in uh, fake religion like what these uh, scribes and Pharisees had, and we take to heart what James said, that true and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. I believe that's James one twenty-seven, if I have my address correct, but you can double-check me on that. True and humble religion. Here, Jesus enjoins a genuine, humble obedience to God's law in a very interesting context. And let me read verses 1 through 12, and then I'll make some introductory comments, and then we'll get into the verses themselves. It says in verse 1 of chapter 23, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. Now remember, this is Jesus speaking here. This is not, you know... Matt Postiff or, uh, you know, some guy, John Doe, who's talking. This is Jesus saying, if they tell you to observe it, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi, 
But you do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, by way of introduction, it should be obvious to any reader who is serious in their reading of Matthew's gospel that the nation has, on a national scale, rejected his offer of the kingdom. Okay? One of the big things about the book of Matthew is Jesus comes as king and offers the kingdom. He says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John the Baptist does. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and they have rejected him by and large. And then a huge proportion of individuals also in the nation have rejected his offer of personal salvation in order to be prepared for the coming of that kingdom. This leads to the messages of woe in chapter 23. Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the people for their wicked rebellion against him. Thinking in the big picture now, somebody might look at this big picture and say, okay, I understand that's what you're saying, but why is Jesus so interested in uh, a personal attention or uh, kind of a, an infantile or selfish desire to be number one? You know, he comes, he's offering the kingdom, and people don't want him, so what's the big deal? They can pick and choose, can't they? Now, Jesus does not feel their response and as a personal rejection or something that gives him a chip on his shoulder. He is the divinely ordained king. Are you with me? Expecting his subjects to submit to his rule. I mean, he made this place. He built it from scratch, from nothing. It would be good for the nation of Israel to receive their king, wouldn't it? Remember what we said about the law that God gave? He gave it for the good of the people. It wasn't to, like, you know, pen them in, restrain them. It was to protect them so that they could live life to the whole fullest extent. We see that, don't we, in, in, when, as we become more mature in our Christian faith, when we look maybe at it from the outside or from, from early in our immature state, we say, well, God doesn't want me to do this and God doesn't want me to do that. And God, yeah, but what does God want you to do? And how does he want you to be? And then you find the real freedom in righteousness that you have that you don't have when you're in sin. You're enslaved to sin. You don't have the kind of glorious liberty of the children of God when you are living outside of the rubrics of God's law. So when God expects his subjects to submit to his rule, it's good for them if they would do so. But they refused because they had a higher good thing in their mind their own selfish pursuits. Reception of their king would crimp or cramp their style in their selfish pursuits, but it would be in accordance with Old Testament prophecy. Um, Behold, your king comes to you, Matthew 21.5, which is an echo of Zechariah 9.9. Behold your God. Behold, you know, the one who brings good news on the mountains. Oh, we sing that around Christmas time, don't we? Uh, wonderful passages in the Old Testament. And so the, the Old Testament predicts 
that the, the coming of the king, and so the people of Israel should want this. But rejection of the king, in a similar way, connects them to the dark side of those prophecies. Remember, we despised him, we esteemed him not, we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. They, they uh, poured out upon him uh, their wrath, as it were, and rejection. They pierced him, and so he is at once the fulfillment of the kingdom prophecies in glory, but also the prophecies of the suffering, and they had a connection with those, but they did not understand because they were in darkness. Now, only if, to go back to our kind of big picture thinking, you're thinking, okay, God wants this attention for himself. He wants to rule. Christ wants to be in charge or something. Only if you have a very low view of God and his Christ would you accuse God of being egocentric in this matter. Um, you, You know, you can't say to God, God, why don't you just live and let live? You know, if you're trying to tell God to abide by that philosophy, just leave me alone, God. Leave us alone. This is not your kingdom. We'll, we'll tell you when we're right and ready to let you rule over us, which will be never, of course, for the unbeliever. But the fact of the matter is, you, without God, you cannot live. You cannot live. Adam and Eve, as soon as they rejected God, began the certain precipitous descent into death. And then some years later, their natural vigor ran its course, they had no strength left, and they died. That's what happens to us when we are in this sin-cursed body. And if, if the, the world were to say, God, go fly a kite, the whole thing would eventually just blow up. God has to step in. We cannot live for long without God. And so, you know, to say live and let live or go fly a kite or whatever doesn't work that way. Because God is the sustainer of us all. He's not just some uh, you know, deity out there that's kind of in a parallel existence with an infinite or eternal universe. We exist only because he willed us into existence. Now, to the crowds, Jesus speaks in verse 1, and he says to the multitudes and to his disciples, Say, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So he addresses the crowd generally. Then he's going to get to the scribes and Pharisees starting in verse 13. We won't have any time to get to that tonight, but we'll try to work on 1 to 12 for a few minutes. So he says to them, to the crowds, look, do what these guys say. The Lord acknowledged that the scribes and the Pharisees hold the office of lawgivers and law enforcers like Moses before them. What happened to Korah and his gang? Uh, who are those other guys? Uh, Abiram and uh, Dathan and Abiram. Yeah, they didn't obey either. Uh, you had, uh, well, you had uh, Miriam, actually. She got out a crosswise to God's assigned leader there. Aaron did the same thing. You have the golden calf. Well, Moses was the king in effect. He was the prophet and the priest uh, as well. And um, so what it means to sit in Moses' seat is that they held the office. Okay, it's like we would say, the man sitting 
in the Oval Office. We know immediately what that means. It means he's the president. He holds an office that is of high power and high esteem, even if the man himself is not held by some in high esteem. And usually in our country, about half the country doesn't hold the president in high esteem, but he has that office. They have the authority of that seat derived from Moses, and when they communicate Mosaic truth from it, they are to be obeyed. Now, Jesus said this perhaps disappointedly or sadly or even angrily because they were terrible shepherds, terrible teachers or religious leaders to the people of Israel. The Lord still said this, though, because it was true, and, of course, he never said anything that was a lie. So let me flesh this out. If someone is invalid in terms of behavior or qualifications and yet holds the office and is exercising divinely sanctioned authority, they are to be obeyed. Obey the governors, Paul says, Caesar, and so on. And as much, of course, as they're not commanding you to do sin, obviously. That's, we understand that. We've been over that territory many times. Even leaders as objectively bad as the Pharisees were to be obeyed inasmuch as they commanded the observance of the law of Moses. Now that probably frustrated some Jewish people to no end. Think about it. I have to obey them? They're a bunch of crooks, nuts, hypocrites. How can I obey them? I just want to disobey them just because they deserve it. But they were objectively bad, and they were yet to be obeyed. The station or office is the power behind the command, not the person. The office is the significant thing, not the individual who occupies the office who may have better or worse character traits. Obviously, we should strive to have office holders who are qualified. Instead of dragging the office down, men who elevate and adorn the office, that's a given, but... The reality is that we simply have to deal with, oftentimes, office holders who are not even close to what they should be. It's, and, and this is uh, true in politics, of course. It's true in uh, institutional churches or denominational churches. It's true in any kind of organization where there are people in charge and people not in charge. It's clear that if the Jews were supposed to obey the law of Moses under a bad office holder, then they would certainly be required to be obedient and all the more to office holders who were good ones, like Jesus. First uh, Timothy 6.2, I was reading it this morning, and it kind of, this kind of triggered my memory to that passage. There it says, if you are a servant to a master who's a believer, render them service all the more heartily because you know that the one you're serving is, is a believer and thus you're benefiting another believer, a brother in the, in the faith. Despite all the negative connotations that brings up to us with regard to slavery and servitude, it's still the word of God. And, and so it's today with governors, presidents, kings, teachers, husbands, and pastors, you're, you're never required to violate God's law. But certainly, if those instruments of God's administration are telling you to do things consistent with God's word, then you should obey those things, even if those instruments, people, are very flawed. 
you know, don't let this attitude rule over you. I'm not going to do what they tell me. I'm going to do what I have pleased to do. That mentality takes over, and you get yourself crosswise, not of just of the leader, but of whom? God. Disobedience to your authority in those areas where, obviously, it's not disobedience to God. Disobedience to the authority is disobedience to God. And if you have a good office holder, good president, good governor, good mayor, whatever, you should observe and do what they ask all the more. shouldn't be a fight all the time, but sometimes it is in the home and in the church. So we looked at in Genesis chapter 3, your desire will be toward your husband. And our interpretation of that was that you would desire to rule over him, just like sin wanted to rule over Cain in uh, Genesis chapter 4, verse 7. Same verb, same idea. And so there's a struggle in the home, and we prayed God help us in that struggle. In Hebrews chapter 13, it tells us to obey those that have the rule over us. Those are spiritual leaders, pastors, uh, Bible teachers. So this is where part of where I get the idea of being humble from. This is humbling. Bad leaders are not worthy themselves of your attention or obedience, but God who set them in that place is worthy of your attention and obedience. So he has ordained our leaders, church, politics, local, federal, whatever, and uh, he is worthy of our attention and obedience. And God is teaching you something through their, uh, those bad leaders too, isn't he? He's teaching you patience. He's teaching you long-suffering, perseverance. He's teaching you to do good even when it's not easy to do good. But also, I just remind you, some, imagine you're in a situation where you don't have bad leaders. No, nobody's perfect, obviously, but imagine you have you know, decent leaders. Rejoice when you have those good leaders. Tolerate the bad ones and follow the things that they ask you to do, but uh, do indeed rejoice when you have good leaders. But when you don't, you may... You, know, you certainly obey them when they say to do the right things, but don't do what they do. Verses 3a, uh, sorry, 3b rather to 7, the scribes and the Pharisees, their works did not match their words, for they say and do not do, the end of verse 3 says. You know, do as I say, not as I do. Suppose we get that from this passage, and uh, certainly a truism. They communicated some you know, valid law and expected others to be subject to it, but they themselves made an exemption. The, the rules were for thee and not for me, they thought. Their works were inconsistent, and here's the difference, my friends. Because I knew somebody was going to say, I'll out there in the internet land or something. You, you said if their works are, are inconsistent. Well, we all are inconsistent to some measure. But in this case, their works were inconsistent and they don't admit it. They don't confess it. They don't repent of it. That's totally different than a person who falls into inconsistency from time to time but confesses it and, and repents of it and wants to improve. Okay? That's what we're about as Christians. We're not about uh, expecting everybody to be perfect little angels. 
That's not the world in which we live. So they made the law-keeping burdensome on all of their disciples. The scribes and the Pharisees gave heavy loads to their people. Look at verse 4. They bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders. Difficult religious regulations that were not specifically found in Scripture. Oh, sure. They could say it's connected to this command, which is connected to this command, and you've got to do this so that you don't get into this, and blah, 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 and they lay all these heavy burdens on people. And the reason that they're bound is not because they're literally like a huge you know, rucksack tied to a person's shoulders. It's that when the religious leaders, the only thing that people in the community know, I mean, there's the man of God, He's standing in front of the synagogue and he's telling me what I have to do to obey God. And he's telling me I got to do A, B, C, D, and E. And if I don't, I'm in big time trouble. You just bound somebody by what you've said and you've laid a heavy burden on them if what you're doing is laying on them extra biblical commands and things. That's not what we want to do. The only thing we want to lay on people are direct teachings and direct principles drawn from that teaching to help them to live properly before God. So they expected people to follow everything to the T, but exempted themselves from similar duty. I wonder how much they emphasized finances. You've got to give this tithe and this tithe and that tithe and all this offering and all that so, so you know we have the support that we need. Right, and that's why you have such glamorous houses and things like that, right? Pharisees and said and scribes and stuff. But they exempted themselves from similar, nor did they help those people they so burdened to lift those burdens. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a few examples, okay? I'm going to really uh, make myself a lot of enemies here, but I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. Here's a few examples. Burdens like this today include requiring celibacy for the priests in the Catholic Church. That is a burden that is impossible for that church to bear. And it's borne out. Oh, I know some people succeed, but that's not the point. The point is that's an extra biblical command. The scripture in 1 Timothy says that a, a man who wants to be an office, in the office of bishop should be the husband of one wife, not zero wives. It's very clear. Indulgences and prayer services for the dead are another one of those things. Can you imagine having laid on your conscience that if you don't have these indulgences, pay these indulgences, or you don't have these proper prayer services, your dead lo- loved one is going to remain in purgatory longer. And, and you don't know any better because that's what you've been taught your whole life. You're, but you've been victimized by false teachers who have laid upon you a burden and bound it to you that is so heavy that it cannot be properly borne. It's not right. Required ritual prayer several times a day where you've got to pray in a certain direction and certain times and all of that sort of thing. That's not what the Scripture teaches. It teaches the exact opposite of that. There's the relationship thing, not some empty ritual. The required tithes and offerings. You know, some churches, the pastors get up and they hammer away at, you've got to give your tithe and give your offering. I've told people, look, if you're a poor person, it might be too much for you to give 10%. I don't teach tithing. That's not a New Testament principle. And if you're a rich person, giving 10% is chintzy, you know? So 
but some people, that's, they lay these burdens on. Any system that demands good works to be assured of salvation, can you imagine the burden of that? The burden of that. Even some in Christendom, or even some in broadly evangelical Christianity, you lose your salvation pretty much when you sin. Then you've got to gain it back again. Oh, talk about a burden. You can't get anything. You can't make progress under that kind of load. Any cultish religion that requires attendance at one particular place or with one particular group, uh, similar. There's, I'm sure, dozens of other examples, and maybe you want to add some to my list, but that'll do for now. Secondly, these Pharisees and scribes, they do religious works in order to be seen by people. They don't want to be rewarded by God in secret. Um, you know, and they had some go-to favorites. Here's what they did. Number one, they would use, uh, well, look at verse number, um, number f- five. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. So what's a phylactery? Anybody know what a phylactery is? So there'd be a little leather uh, box that they could put strap on their forehead and on their arm above their elbow. And there's supposed to be in there written the law of God or some laws of God. And they're strapped on. And so bigger box, bigger straps, you're a more spiritual person. Uh, you wear a garment that has hem, a hemmed bottom with tassels on it. And the bigger the tassels, the more ostentatious the tassels, the more spiritual maybe you are going to be. Now, in, uh, as far as the phylactery is concerned, that little box with the scripture in it, what they did is they took Exodus 13, 9 and a number of other passages of scripture. Let me just read one of those for you. There's I've listed some of the notes. Actually, uh, those are not published on the website for you yet, but they will be. In Exodus, um, let's see if I can find it here. Exodus 13, 9. It shall be a sign to you on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the Lord's law may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And then 13.16, it shall be as a sign on your hand and as frontlets between your eyes, for by strength of hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. And then Deuteronomy has a couple as well. So what they did is they took that passage and they over-literalized it. What does it mean when it says that the word of God should be in front of your eyes and on your hands? It means that everything you think and everything you do with your, the works of your hand needs to be infused with, empowered by, controlled by the word of the law of God. That's what it was, to keep the word of God always in the front of your mind and have the word always in the works of your hands, not just when you're in prayer mode or you're wearing your phylacteries and the large tassels on the bottom of the garment. Um, Jesus may have worn a garment with tassels on it, but modest ones, no doubt. In, in uh, obedience to Numbers 15, they were to have tassels on the corners of their garment to remind them of the law. And so bigger is better, I guess, right? But really what these Pharisees wanted was to be seen by people. Third, they wanted to be in a place at the most prominent locations at public events, like at the feasts and in the synagogue. You know, there's almost nothing more 
odious than to see somebody who always has to be right at the microphone or right in front of the cameras or right at the top you know, uh, seat in, in the, in the uh, banquet or something like that. That's just, it's just, un, it's just unbecoming, um, uh, arrogant. Fourthly, they wanted greetings in the marketplace that everyone but could hear. Fifthly, they wanted to be exalt, they have the exalted title rabbi or father, and they loved hearing people use that title. They loved the praise of men more than they loved the praise of God. The gist of this all is that the religious leaders did not ascribe glory to God. Rather, they wanted glory for themselves. They wanted a place of power. They had worldly religion. Instead, Jesus tells the crowd, here's the kind of religion that I want you to have. It's a humble kind of religion. First of all, don't accept the title rabbi. This is because there's only one true rabbi, which is, means master or teacher. Just the Messiah fills that role. The human being is nowhere close to the Messiah. And in fact, he says, uh, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. What does he mean by that? Well, he means basically we're here essentially on the same plane. Pastor Matt, so what? He's Matt. He's Matthew. He's a a man. You the same, okay? We're just people. And more or less training or practice or giftedness or whatever really doesn't matter that much in the big scheme of things. He is our master. Christ is our Lord. So don't be going around looking for titles. Um, The issue here is a lack of humility on the part of these scribes and Pharisees. Their religiosity, their attention-seeking, that was at the heart of the Pharisaical religion. Secondly, do not use the title Father for a person. This is in verse number 9. Do not call anyone on earth your father. I, for, for the life of me, cannot figure out how the title Father came to be used of Catholic priests with this verse in the Bible. I mean, I'm sure there's some machinations that they can go around and work at this and try to you know, make it sound like it's okay. But when the Scripture says, do not call anyone on earth your father, I've, I've been called that, by the way, sometimes for people that are outside of our circle, you know, to say, Father, postiff or something. I'm like, no, that's not. I immediately correct them. That is not the case. I am a teacher, a Bible teacher, a pastor, or whatever, but not father because the Bible says, do not call anyone on earth your father. Now we're talking in a religious context here, okay? We're not talking about dad, you know, human pater, human father. We're talking about religiously. Uh, and there's only one of those religiously, and that is in heaven. To call a man father in a religious sense, to me, strikes a, a, just a, a blasphemy. A, just a blasphemy. Now, although I say that, I'm cautious not to go around and tell people, everybody that says that, you know, you're a blasphemer. What, I'm, what I would add to that understanding is I make room for people who simply don't know any better. They've been taught that's the respectful thing to do, and I appreciate respect. That's a very good quality, that you express it incorrectly. You know, we can work on that. But so, you know, for somebody who knows, however, don't call anyone on earth your father, but call me father, 
Right? That's blasphemy to me. And that kind of knowing rejection of God's word um, is too much. Thirdly, don't accept the title teacher in this context. The title was like a substitute for Christ, the real teacher. Again, it's very similar to rabbi earlier on. But I think what's happening here is the, the Lord is saying, look, there's one Father in heaven, there's one Christ, and uh, if you're referring to somebody as rabbi, he's trying to take the place of Christ. If somebody demands to be called your teacher, uh, he's trying to take the place of Christ. But listen, friends, there is no vicar of Christ on earth. For any of Christ's offices or capacities, there's no substitute. No vicar. That's what vicar means, a substitute. There is no vicar of Christ. Indeed, we have people who are in the teaching office and can be described as teachers. Ephesians 4.11 even says, the Spirit of God gave some to be pastors and teachers, and evangelists and apostles and prophets. But these who are so-called need to be extremely careful, A, to not teach incorrectly, and B, uh, to not look for kudos or compliments or congratulations from everybody for their spiritual service because they will receive a stricter judgment. James 3.1 says, Don't be many teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. So instead of being like Pharisees, as I close here, in their self-seeking, praise-motivated attitude, we need to be humble servants. Again, the Lord teaches us at the end of the passage in verse 11 and 12, He who is great among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So the Lord teaches that those who put themselves up will be brought down and those who are, are putting themselves down will be exalted or lifted up. Uh, this is a, a general teaching. God may put down a self-exalting person in this life so that they will learn or he may put them down eternally in judgment. A humble person of faith he may lift up in this life in some ways, or perhaps not, but definitely in the kingdom and in eternity, he will lift such a person up. That brings us to the end of verse number 12, and I know I've kind of gone over that quickly. Remember, we've been over this territory before, and we should be well instructed that we are to be humble. If you have any tendency toward that self-elevation, that pride, that arrogance, you need to extirpate it right away. That means remove, get rid of, mortify it, kill it. Uh, keep working at that because the flesh always wants that recognition. But the reality is God wants us to have humility and to be his servants that way. So let's do so. Let's pray tonight about that. Father, as we close our meeting tonight, my prayer is that your people will take these words to heart, that we will indeed strive to be like the ones Jesus describes here who are humble servants, not like the ones who are proud rebels. Keep us, I pray, from mere religion, but instead keep us in the center of Christ's faith, of his religion, of his teaching. And we thank you for your help in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. You have a good night, everybody. Lord bless you. Thank you if you were online watching or will in the future here. We appreciate your attendance to our meetings as, uh, as you can.
And uh, God bless you all. Have a good night. Amen.